Anyway, so we're in the uh, fourth week of uh, the vision series of our church. Uh, what some might call our motto or slogan, what, whatever you want to call it, is be loved and love. And so this is our fourth week on that. Dan preached the first two weeks about being loved and what that is about receiving love. First of all, about receiving the love of God and then about receiving the love of others, specifically those in the church. And it's hard to love if you don't know what love is and and haven't received love. Uh, Many people have gotten a warped view of what receiving the love of God looks like, that we have to be good enough, that we have to be smart enough, that we have to do these things to receive the love of God. And some of us have not received love from people in the church. So what does that look like? And then last week, Dan spoke on loving God, loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And so my task in, in, in wrapping this up today is to talk about loving others and our neighbors. And so I've had a lot of things going through my head as, as I've thought about this, and, and specifically a lot of songs. And um, you know, I started thinking through, well, the Beatles, Beatles told us, uh, all we need is love. And you too, which is always right on their last album, <laughs> tells us that love is bigger than anything in its way. And so, you know, I, we look around, we look at things that are on the news this last week and things that are happening. And I thought back to the Black Eyed Peas song of Where is the Love? <laughs> and, you know, all the things that they say in that song are still true today. We haven't really made any progress from all the things they enumerate asking where is the love? And then in an earworm techno song from 1993, and this will be the answer to a trivia question, and it's the title of my message is, What is Love? Sung by the great artist Hathaway. Um, and and he, he never asks it. He, asks, he never answers it. He asks the question a lot and asks his baby to not hurt him and a bunch of woes, but never answers what is love. And so that's what... And so that's my task today is uh, to answer the question, what is love? And specifically in regards to our neighbor. Now, we use love in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I love my wife, Jonna. I love her more than anything else on this earth. I would do anything for her. Um, So I love my wife. Um, I also love that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. That makes me extremely happy having grown up in Kansas City. Um, I love Mexican food. I love tacos, fajitas, enchiladas, all those things. Um, But do I love all those things in the same way that I love my wife? Now, when it comes to fajitas, my wife say, yes, I love those as much as I love her. And so we would say that those are are, are different types of love. You know, if we want to throw in another person there, I I love Ron like like a brother. Um, And I found an interesting article over Christmas break, and it was from the L.A. Times, And it addressed the the different ways we use emotion languages. And the article is titled, What is Love Actually? And then the subtitle to that was, The World's Languages Describe Emotions Very Differently. And so what these researchers did is they looked at different language patterns from over 2,500 languages and found that emotion words have very different meanings depending on the origin uh, and the language families that they came from. And the quote and kind of the summary of this was, we walk around assuming that everyone else's experience is the same as ours because we name it with the same word. And this study suggests that it might not be the case. So one of my presuppositions and arguments this morning that I'm going to make is that we don't know what love is. 
Thus, it's hard to proceed in us talking about love and how to love our neighbors and how to love God and how to love others if we can't even talk about it. So if we run around, and, and one of Dan's favorite things to do is to have a whiteboard and, and write a bunch of things on it, and we went around and asked everybody, all right, what's love? Give us a descriptor, give us a definition. What we would find is we might group some things together, but we really wouldn't come up with a linear definition. We'd come up with more of a word cloud, and we see these where, you know, where there's this bigger words are the ones that were used most often, and smaller were, and the ones that were used least often would be there. And so I think we would come up with a word cloud if we did that. So, again, how can we love, how can we talk about love if we don't really know what love is? So we need to agree on the term. So I, I gave an attempt at writing a definition after studying this, and, and what I think is, is, is a biblically-based definition based on the text we're going to look at. And so it's the first thing there on your bulletin. Uh, I've been given a hard time about having fill in the blanks this morning by Blake, who usually gives me a hard time. Uh, Oh, the interns. But, um, but it is love is a voluntary response to God's gracious gift whereby we reflect God's character to those around us. Love is a voluntary response to God's gracious gift whereby we reflect God's character to those around us. And so we're going to look at 10 things this morning, and don't freak out about 10 things. These are going to go pretty quick because some of it's just going to be one word and we're going to move on to the next one. And we're going to get a picture of what love is from the two primary texts we're going to look at. And it's 1 John 4 and then 1 Corinthians 13. And there's not going to be anything new, there's not going to be anything profound, there's not going to be anything mind-blowing or earth-shattering this morning. It's going to be things that we know, but I hope by putting it together in this way that we'll get a more clear picture of what love is. So if we look at 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the first thing there is love is initiated by God. Love is initiated by God. And 1 John 4, 7 opens with a very simple single word, and it says, Beloved. Now, if we're beloved, it begs the question of, by whom are we loved? And so the context, if you read through all of 1 John, beloved and children, is throughout there. But nowhere, probably nowhere more clearly than in 1 John 3, 1, where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we start to get this picture that beloved, we're beloved by God. Jeremiah 31, 3, where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. One that we learn when we're talking about salvation, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's really that simple. We weren't worthy. We weren't beautiful. We didn't earn. We did not do anything to merit God's love. God loves us simply because he chose to love us. So love is initiated by God. Second thing, love is a response. So following beloved, because we are beloved, it says, let us love one another. And as we've read in uh, 4.19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. And then in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is more like a $1,000 word. And so it, it, it's one that has a lot of Old Testament meaning to it, but try to bring it into our modern-day uh, word usage. It's the process by which we become like God's character through his decree to pardon and bless the sinner. So we become like God's character because of his judicial act on our behalf. In doing so, Christ, he became our substitute. He took our place. He erased our sin. He took on the guilt of our sin, and he erased it so that we are no longer sinners. So we love because God loved us. God initiated that, and our love is therefore a response to God. Number three, love is a choice. It says there, let us love one another. Now, it makes sense. If we can love one another, we can also choose not to love one another. So love is a choice. We can be hateful. We can be cruel. We can be apathetic. We can ignore others. And we, we hear love is a choice a lot in the context of relationship and marriage counseling. You know that some days you just don't feel like loving, but you make the choice to love anyway. Or we hear about people falling out of love, and they're like, no, love's not an emotion. Love's a choice. Love's an action. Love is something that you do. And so by, by saying some of those things that we do, we've reduced love to a feeling. that something fleeting. Now, one could make the argument that in the context of this first John being written to Christians, that this love is only to be directed towards other Christians, that it's not outside of those that are saved. But this line of thinking really doesn't carry through, and we'll see that as we walk through the rest of this message. So, love is a choice. Number four, love is a matter of obedience. It says, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So not only is love a choice, it takes the next step to love being a command. It's very clear in other places, John 13, 34, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. In John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And through those verses, we see all these first four points coming together. God loved us. Thus, we show our response to God's love and choosing to love and obeying God's command to love each other. And the very famous passage where they asked Christ, trying to test him, what is the greatest command? in all of the Bible, trying to get him to pick one over the other. And he responded in Matthew, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's been a lot of talk recently. I saw another news article on it about a week and a half ago of of people choosing to pull away, build a community elsewhere um, to try to stay away from all the mess that we see in our society uh, and live a holier life, live a more peaceful life. And a couple years ago, there was a book called The Benedict Option uh, that was very um, widely talked about at the time, and I read it. And basically, the premise of it was is that Christians should withdraw from society we should take our Western Christian values with us, and we should have our own schools, we should have our own churches, and with time, the storm of, of secularism that's coming into this country will pass, and we'll pass the storm, and thus have saved Western civilization. But there's something seriously wrong with that argument. We're commanded to love. We don't get to choose to go and be a hermit somewhere. You don't get to draw yourself away from the world. 
you're commanded to love in the world in which you are in. There's no qualifications on where we're to love. So that's not a valid option. And then number five from this passage, love is evidence of regeneration, of salvation, of being born again. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, I don't, I don't think you can find a statement that's more clear. If you don't love other people, you are not a follower of Christ. If you don't love other people, there is not evidence of regeneration and salvation in your life. You've either not had your heart transformed by God, or you need to repent and come back to God and love other people. Love has been chosen as the evidence that we are indeed saved and that we are a follower of Christ. And John 13, 35 makes this very, very plain. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so this makes me think, why has the church lost so much influence today? Is it because of the rise of secularism? Yeah. Are we in a post-Christian nation? Yes. But, but why has the church lost so much influence in the lives of people? And, and think about that for a second. Because we, as the church, in many cases, rightly, we have not loved our neighbor. We've not loved those around us. Whether it's we decide to gather in our holy huddles in, in large churches and we keep building communities under ourselves, or we're in small churches and we just have activities that we have amongst ourselves, we have ignored the needs of the city, We've stayed away from those that are different than us. We've villainized people who, who have beliefs different than us instead of reaching out to those and loving each other. And, and I will say, I and will represent the church. I've been guilty of being unloving. So why would the world want something like that when we are unloving? Why should we tell them that we have this great freedom, we have this great hope, we have this great peace in Jesus Christ? Why would they want that when we are unloving to those around us? When we love, we are unattractively unloving. So who did Christ go to? Who did he minister to? Well, he went to the sinners. Who did Christ shun? He shunned righteous people and religious people that did not love. Who are the ones that he held up as examples of love, such as the Good Samaritan? Social outcasts that did the right thing and loving their neighbors. So how can we call ourselves followers of Jesus if we ignore his example? Because God is love. Now, I want to transition to 1 Corinthians 13, which we all know is the love chapter, which if you've been to any wedding, you've heard it read. It's probably been read poorly by some small child that they wanted to include as part of the wedding. Not knocking on small children, reading this as, as part of a wedding. It's good that they do that. But... Like uh, many chapters and verses in the Bible, we pull it out of its context, and so we don't really see the whole as to why it sits where it does. And so to start, the church in Corinth really was not a great church. If there was a problem in the church, the church at Corinth had it going on. And so there's evidence of letters and visits and all these things of trying to get the church in Corinth to shape up. And it always makes me laugh when you drive by and you see a sign that says, like, First Corinth Baptist Church. 
And I always say, man, that, that church has not read the book of Corinthians. <laughs> or they would not name themselves after the church in Corinth. So maybe we need to stop and, and read Corinthians together. But throughout the book, Paul walks them through many problems that they're having and helps resolve disputes and helps them solve doctrinal issues and things about how to get the church on the right track. And then we come to chapter 12 where Paul starts talking about the body of Christ and how each of its members make up the body of Christ and how the body of Christ should function together just as the physical body uh, did. And their spiritual gifts are to be used in unity. And people were fighting over, I have this gift, so I'm better than you, and your gift isn't as good as mine, and so on and so forth. And I did a devotion on chapter 12 once, and, and my question was, all right, not counting your appendix because that's cheating, which part of your body could you live without? And, and, and think about that. You know, some of you may think, oh, it's an easy answer. But then you think, okay, what could I not do without that part of my body. And it's the same in the church. The body of Christ functions because we are different. And it's the differences that make the whole body function. In verses 19 and 20 in chapter 12, Paul states and then asks, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single part, where would the body be? And he uses the example of an ear and an eye. And he says, if everybody were an ear, where would the seeing be? If everyone were an eye, where would the hearing be? And then at the end of verse 12, or at the end of chapter 12, he rhetorically asks, is everyone the same? Which, of course, they're not. So why would we all desire to be the same? And then he ends in verse 31 with a statement which sets up chapter 13. I will show you a more excellent way. And so that's how we get into 1 Corinthians 13. And this helps us set the context when if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and just hear at a wedding, like, what's all this stuff about clanging cymbals and noisy gongs? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? You know, but we read it because it's part of 1 Corinthians 13. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to open to that, we're going to read through 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So let's just stop there. These are the gifts that were, were considered great. So the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy, the ability to understand the deep mysteries of the faith and the teachings of Christ and the scriptures in the Old Testament. People who were sacrificial to the point of even actually offering to give their body up so that it could be burned and give away all that they have. And we look at those and say, man, those are great gifts. Those are the ones that you should aspire to. But if you have those great gifts without love, those spiritual gifts mean nothing to the church without love. And then we get into the enumeration of what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when it, the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we're in this period of time where we only see a portion of what's being done, but we don't see the whole thing, the whole future yet. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror a glass dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so you can have everything. You can have the greatest gifts of that time. Prophecy and knowledge, you can give away all you have. You can even give your body to be burned. But without love, it doesn't mean anything. And so number six there, what Paul is saying is love is a spiritual gift to the church. So God has given love as a spiritual gift to every member of the church. No matter what other spiritual gifts you have, whether you had great gifts, whether you had small gifts, whether you had gifts that were up front that people praised or gifts of service that people may not have ever seen, love is the one gift that everyone in the church was given by God. Thus, love is a unifying spiritual gift. It is to be used both within the church to minister to one another and to be used outside of the church to minister to the people around the church. And so it helps us to accomplish what God's mission is in this world, is sharing the love of God through Jesus Christ and bringing the message of redemption to those who don't know it. So no matter whatever gifts have existed at any point in history, love is the preeminent gift. Again, this backs up the claim that love is from God and that it is an evidence of regeneration because it is a spiritual gift. And I would argue one cannot have a spiritual gift if one has not been born again and one has not been regenerated by the Spirit. Now, this may be one of the most controversial points here, number seven, is love is only copied by the world. Love is only copied by the world. And the reason I say this is if love is a spiritual gift, and that's a gift that's been given by God specifically to the church, and then specifically in response to the greatest gift of the church, redemption and salvation through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, true, real, authentic love is something that Christians can possess. Now, I want to quickly add to that statement that love has characteristics that can be mimicked and that can be used by those that are unbelievers. And in fact, unbelievers often do a better job at showing the characteristics of love than Christians do. But it cannot be true love because love is a spiritual gift. And that's a shame that we failed in that area. That unbelievers and people that we would call out for other things that they say, that they do, often show the characteristics of love better than we do as those who are redeemed by Jesus Christ. We who have received the greatest gift of love, and I've said this several times now, the greatest gift of love, of salvation through Jesus Christ, are the ones who should be the most ready to give and the ones that are the most ready to show the characteristics of love. So love is only copied by the world. Number eight, love and its practices are defined by God. Love and its practices are defined by God. Now, we hear this all the time. If everyone would just love one another, we'd solve all the problems in society. And maybe there's some truth to that. But we don't get to define love. As we talked about at the beginning, we can't even agree on the definition of love because we talk about we love so many things. And so that's the, what the intent is today, is to describe what is love. But God defines what love is and how we do love. 
It's not just pleasant thoughts or feelings to someone or sending out good vibes to the universe and hoping things will change and that it will come back to us somehow. You don't get to choose to love how you want. Or someone else doesn't get to define love how they want. It just doesn't work in that way. The phrase of, it's just all love, man, is just a blatantly wrong statement. Because God defines the practices of love and the characteristics of love and how we do love one another. And that leads to number nine. Love is an action directed towards others. Love is an action directed towards others. As we look at that list there, we're not going to dwell on each thing that's enumerated. But we should notice that it is not something that can be done in isolation. It involves other people, specifically attitudes and actions that are directed towards other people. Notice it does not specify anything about the person's worthiness of receiving these attitudes and characteristics of love. It tells us what love is, and we already know that love is a command. So this is the way that God defines love, and God commands us to love, then this is the way that we are to love. To fail to do these things is to be disobedient to God's plan and God's command of love. And just a few things there, patient and kind, not envy or boast, arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. No matter how bad your day is, no matter how bad it's going, no matter how annoying the person, the person you may walk into tomorrow and says someone has a case of the Mondays and you just kind of want to slap them around a little bit. Let's be honest, we all want to do that sometimes. Um, this is a command from God. It doesn't matter your personality style, your, your disc personality, whatever Enneagram number you are, whatever that thing is, I don't know, does not excuse you from loving others. You can't just say, well, this is my personality style, so people are just going to have to get over it. That does not excuse you from loving others. The way they treat you or the way they've treated you in the past does not excuse you from loving another person. And that is the way to love one another. And then finally, number 10, love is the greatest of all human attributes. And we'll set aside the discussion of what spiritual gifts are still present in the church, which ones faded away with the passing of the apostolic early church. But we know from verse 8 that love never ends. No matter what the world looks like around us, the fighting and the divisions that we see on the news, anytime you turn on the TV, we know that love never ends. Number one, because God's eternal. And because number two, there will always be a remnant of believers who have received God's love and thus are able to show God's love. As we wrap this up, I want to look specifically at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Have you ever thought about that statement? About why that is? I've heard that in the context of marriages, and I can think of one where it was like, you know, you have faith that your marriage is going to work and this is the right person for you, and you hope your marriage is going to succeed, and your faith and your hope will be will be realized and it'll come together if you just love one another. So, so love will fulfill your faith and hope. And, and, and that's just such a, a wrong thing. And faith is not bad. We preach about having faith. We preach about having hope. And we're obviously preaching about having love this morning. So how can we really parse out which one of those three is the greatest? But you see, there'll be one day where we don't need faith anymore. 
Because we will see face to face, we will stand before God, and everything that we believe and everything that we've longed for and the suffering and all the trials, we will have faith that it's all been true. So in the midst of the circumstances right now, while we still need faith, hold on and stay true to your faith. Even when the doubts and despair and things creep up, hold on to faith, knowing that one day you will not need that faith anymore. The same thing is true with hope. There will be a day when our hope that everything in this world that's wrong, that we want to see made right, the, the injustice, the fighting, the turmoil, the racism, all those things will be made right once we stand before God. So hold on to hope and hold on to a sovereign God who loves you and has a plan for you. But love is the greatest because it's the only thing that has existed before time and will exist after time. One of my favorite parts of Scripture from Christ's high priestly prayer is in John 17. And the last few verses say, Father, and this is Christ praying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So why did God create man? Was God lonely? Did God need to put up with a bunch of people running around on the earth making a mess of things so that he could come in and try to clean it up? It was to share that love with someone that was made in the image and likeness of God. There was an overflow of that love between the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And even when that image and likeness of God was marred and corrupted by the fall and through sin, God made, us, made a way to bring us back to Him so that He could fully love us again by grace through faith through the redemption in Jesus Christ. So we see through the glass dimly right now. It's dark, it's dirty, we can't see everything that's going on. We can only see a picture of that. So we have the faith and hope of what's going to happen in the future. But one day, we will see the full majesty and the full glory of God and His love for us on display. So what is love? Love is a voluntary response to God's gracious gift, whereby we reflect God's character to those around us. So finally, if you've not received God's love through Jesus Christ, come receive that today. You don't need to do anything but believe by grace through faith that Christ loves you as you are, completely unworthy of his love. But as you receive his love through faith, he makes you worthy. If you've been hurt by others and you feel unworthy of being loved, there's a church here that is ready to accept you and love you no matter what is in your past or what is in your present life. If you've not loved others as you should, start to reflect the love of God in your own life to others. And the only way to do that is responding to the fact that God loved you first. Today, come find true love through the one who loved you and died for you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank, that you've, you thank you that you've loved us with an everlasting love, that you chose to initiate that love relationship with yourself even before, well, even when we were worthy of nothing but the punishment of sin and death. 
We thank you that you've made a way to bring us back to yourself, to redeem us. And one day, we will stand before you. We'll stand with the saints and the believers of all ages in a full, amazing display of love and where we worship together and where we worship you. I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not experienced the love from you, that they would see their need, that they would come to know you, and they would come to know the greatest love that there's ever been. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.